0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be tuning in from in the world, and welcome to another episode of We Got This Podcast. My door is always open, your opinions are always valued, I welcome your input anytime. I'm sure you are as tired of these phrases as I am, because often they are what I call throwaway phrases, vague, with no real meaning, strong behaviours or actions behind them. And much is said about psychological safety and getting employees to speak up. But is the push for speak-up culture merely a trendy corporate buzzword? Or does it actually hold tangible value for businesses? Could the pursuit of a speak-up culture be at odds with the need for decisive leadership and swift actions in times of crisis? Or could the emphasis on speak-up culture potentially lead to too much noise where critical feedback is drowned out by a high volume of less voluble input. These are the questions I'm grappling with, and I'm sure you are too. So who better to help answer these questions than the chap who has just published a book titled Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. You'd think I'd plan these things, but genuinely I don't. His name is Stephen Shadletsky, and Stephen helps leaders with making it safe and worth it for people to speak up. He supports humble leaders, those who know they are both a part of the problems they're experiencing and the solutions they can create as they put their people and the purpose first. He graduated from the Richard Ivey School of Business with a focus on leadership, communication and strategy. And he has also for many work, uh, years worked with Simon Sinek. As chief of staff, he headed a global team of speakers and facilitators. <music> We Got This showcases individuals and organizations that create people-focused workplace cultures to help them become the norm rather than the exception. It's something that will require a mindset shift and probably not something that any of us can do alone. But together, together, we got this. Steven, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, left. Thank you so much. Yeah, fantastic to have you. I know I prompted you about this, and so hopefully you do have an answer ready. Uh, the icebreaker question—I've
1: probably already forgotten, so I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, uh, I'll be fresh. <laughs> That's I
0: absolutely. We'll refresh you. the The icebreaker question on this podcast is: When you were little, who did you want it to be when you grew up?
1: Oh, when I was little, I mean, I remember I, I first wanted to be probably a police officer or firefighter—one of the two. And for some reason, I wanted to be a used car salesman. I don't think I understood the connotations of that. And then I, I loved cars when I was a kid, so I wanted to be a car designer. And then uh, uh, really a huge role model of mine is my grandfather. He was gregarious, he was courageous, and so I just wanted to be more like him.
0: Ah, uh, okay. I have to say, you, you're making it difficult for me because I always make it a challenge for myself to try and see the connection between what pe- who people wanted to be when they were little with what they do now, and I'm always able to certain extent see that. I can see potentially maybe the policeman a little bit and the kind of the the, the service elements of that. Yeah, but I guess I'm, I'm I'd be pushing it. So I'll I'll turn it on to you. Do you see the connection between what you do now and your kind of your career
1: and with those early dreams? I mean, definitely my connection with my grandfather. I mean my my grandfather was not a perfect human being that doesn't exist, but he was like i said gregarious, always willing to share a story with anyone who would listen had great stories him himself of his past, which include, included quite frankly a heroic past so yeah, I mean he had a stutter like I have a stutter, and yet that didn't get in the way of him being an entertainer and being an being a being a, being, a, being a storyteller so yeah there's a there's a lot of correlation and I get feedback from family and people who who knew him that I've I've be I, I've become a another version of him.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, obviously, we were chatting a little bit about what your plans are, and I'm not going to really talk about them in, in detail related to your grandfather and what were your plan in the in coming years. But I think now that it even makes more sense that you that you add that that connection that you see that you see that. Um, one of my favourite answers to this question was which again I, I I couldn't make the connection, but it was from Hendy Stewart, the the author of uh, the Happiness Manifesto, Happy Inc., based in London. And he said he wanted to be an ice cream salesman. And I'm just like, Okay, that's cool. But tell me a little bit more. And he says, Because it gives people joy and happiness, getting an ice cream cone on a Sunday in the park. And I kind of go, Wow, that is brilliant. And actually, you know, he li- he still lives that which is which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Right. Uh, speak up culture. Uh, i always I always find it difficult to, to start. first question, what well, where do we want to go from the icebreaker? Sometimes it flows sometimes a little a little bit trickier. But obviously, yes, you've released um the book and before we kind of get into the details, one thing that is on my mind is, why now? Why not in two years' time or five years ago? Is that a particular reason why you decided to devote the time to the book to write it and to publish it in? Um, sorry.
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite quotes right now comes from a Danish theologian Kierkegaard, who says, "Life always makes sense looking backwards, but it must be looked forwards." And you know, when you look back, it always makes sense. But like, I don't know, it just kind of <laughs> happened. Working with Simon Sinek for all those years, I would often be asked like, you know, when are you going to write a book of your own? And my response was always, if and when I ever come across something worth writing about, you know, I, I never I never thought that I had a book within me. I always knew I wanted to capture my my grandfather's story, which will likely be my, my my next book with a working title of The Book of Ben, which we can speak about more, or for our next podcast or next live. And so that was my standard because we've all come across books that exist because keynote speakers need something to sound in the back of the room. That's the definition of a waste of time and, and paper. So I did come across a few experiences where speak-up culture sort of became front and center. At first, I started calling it Listen Down, as in great leaders listen down within their their organizations. But I didn't love the connotation of down, which is a negative word, as well as it's a little authoritative, hierarchical, pedantic, patriarchal. And so I actually had a conversation with someone by the name of Sue Barlow, who helped Jim Collins with Good to Great. I had Speak Up or Speak Up Culture in the draft of the subtitle. And she said, just make that the title. And I'm like, thanks for speaking up, Sue. That's great. And so, the book is Speak Up Culture When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. And so, there were are, are two pivotal looking back, like, why did I write this book? Well, one, I grew up with a stutter and I know what it feels like to be voiceless because I chose not to speak up or the fear to speak up was simply too big to to overcome or surmount um, or failing. you know, There are moments where I stuttered in public and it was embarrassing and, and awful and triumphant, which I can explain too. And then, you know, I had this 15 or I've had this 15-year-plus career, and I've seen a myriad of teams. There are teams where I felt there have been a speak-up culture, and it's marvelous for not just the business results, but the relationships that you can build with the folks on on that team. And I'm a big believer that relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. I, I have friends that are dear friends, best friends, because we met on a team. We still don't work together right now, but if we can find a chance to, we will because it was amazing, right? And then I've also been parts of teams or witness teams or even seen teams go from having a speak up culture to not. And all of a sudden, if you speak truth, especially to power, you're the problem. And there's gaslighting and there's toxic positivity. And not only is that bad for our business outcomes, it's also bad for our health and well being. So that was sort of the foundation for, I think I have a book. I think I have something to say and poured, poured myself into it. And uh, a couple of years later, and the book is now out. That's what happened. Interesting story.
0: I Like the element you that you said, you, you didn't think that you had a book in you, despite obviously all all that knowledge that you that you that you possess. I'm glad that you did manage to put it into into words into a book. I've read through it, and every single time I do have a guest who has released a, a book, and I download the ebook off Amazon. I'm always concerned about copyright infringement, uh, simply because I highlight so much in the book that that I know that there's a limit to how much you can highlight. I haven't hit that limit yet, but I think it's somewhere, uh, I did Google it one time, but I think it's somewhere around 45% or 50% that you can't go more highlighting. Which which is but and then most of all exporting because I do export it into kind of other tools that I've got it kind of collated in one place so I can revisit that. And I think there's a there's a, there's a cap on that. I might be making it up now, the numbers. But yeah, I always I
1: always I'm always concerned about that. That's it. A, um, a really neat barometer though for you to to measure your percentage of resonance with a book is the percentage of, of how much you've You've highlighted. <laughs> oh, jeez.
0: I'm reading your book was one of them, uh, obviously, with the topic would have a new here in mind. But I'm also reading another self-development book, uh, which is more about psychological therapy and uh, Jung and his kind of attitude to that. And I've, I've read the first chapter and I I kid you not, I've highlighted pretty much like 90% of that chapter because I was just like, this resonates, this resonates. I just want to, I want to keep that in mind. So it's, it's fascinating to be experiencing that. I digress. I digress. The the, the story that you mentioned of how you came about writing the book is 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 great. The topic is is also fascinating because obviously it's uh, front of mind for for a lot of people. One thing I'm I'm a little bit curious about is about the questions that I've mentioned, the the, the that I posed in the introduction, and I'll bring I'll bring them to 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 you in a second as well. Uh, how do they how did they sit with you if if when you hear things like that? Speak up culture is a bit of a buzzword because the reason I'm asking that is I. I'm at a crossroads of trying to, to emphasize the importance of culture and psychological safety and to, to business leaders who tend to speak a slightly different language of more kind of revenue, profit and language of money to put it bluntly. And messages like the ones that you mentioned in the book and that I uh, agree with don't always get across to them. And that's what makes me think that, for a lot of them, speak-up culture, psychological safety, things like that, is a buzzword. So how how does that sit with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, something that comes with a buzzword means that there's certainly some resonance with it, potentially, or there's it's become popular, or it's, there's, there's demand for it. I think oftentimes, though, that we can misunderstand what it means. And that definitely can happen with psychological safety and speak-up culture. I think folks can think psychological safety... Means a culture of nice, but it's not a culture of nice. It's a culture of kind. Speak up culture for me. Speak up is not an instruction. Speak up is a culture. It's an environment in which people feel it is both safe and worth it to speak up. And speak up doesn't mean loud. Speak up doesn't mean all the thoughts all the time. There, there, there are a couple of tools that I love and really lean into as I. Describe the phenomenon. One, when all else fails in, in management theory, pull from a comedian. So Craig Ferguson, who's a well-known Scottish comedian, has a Venn diagram around does it need to be said by me right now? So speak up isn't stream of consciousness, that's oversharing. Vulnerability is a superpower, but vulnerability requires boundaries and guardrails. It requires context. So speak up culture is not stream of consciousness. That's annoying and oversharing speak up culture is about context as does it need to be said by me now? The really interesting one is this needs to be said right now and not by me, right? And so if we're in a meeting together or working on a project together, Les, and I'm like, he's got a thing, he's got to say the thing, but maybe you're thinking of your groceries, grocery list, or you feel that like you don't have permission or whatever, I can still carve the path and say, can we pause this conversation? I know Les has done some work on this and there's a slide in the appendix left, can you pull up slide 17? Like, I know what you have there is going to fundamentally change our decision. You have to bring it up. That's speak up culture. So so yeah, I, I think we need to be mindful. The, the other thing I'll say is a, as a misnomer or a myth to, to bust with, with speak up culture is there's a sweet spot. And the sweet spot of speak-up culture means that it's productive, it's with tact, it's, it's with respect and decency, it's with emotional intelligence and situational awareness. Speak-up culture is not sucking up, that's hogging air. And a speak-up culture is not a hall pass to be a jerk. There are standards. So yeah, those are, I think, a couple myths that I think to bust that makes uh, a clear definition. And the fact that I'm a big believer that it's good for for business when people share their ideas, their feedback, their opinions, concerns, disagreements, and even mistakes.
0: I think we can. We could easily start a podcast busting myths about psychological safety, speak up culture, and everything to do with culture. And That being said, I am actually working on a, on a short series that will go out on LinkedIn video format on certain myths around culture. But I'd like to pull on that thread if I if if I may, because especially the bit the, the bit that you said at the beginning about um, that we have got to make completely you know misunderstand, misunderstand what speak up culture is. We think that it's it's nice, polite, it's you know sunshine and rainbows when it's not, and there is. That I think you even mentioned in the book, if I remember rightly, it's the the IBM uh, chairman about the fastest way to succeed is to double your failure failure rate. But I hear that a lot of organisations that oh we let people fail, but there's actually nothing that run goes after that, right? It's it's all nice and good, but what hard behaviours? Need to follow from that when people fail, and I think that's what's often missing when it comes to when we talk about culture elements in general as as, as a theme, but specifically when we talk about feedback culture, what does need to what, what needs to follow after that?
1: Well, so I mean, the Amy Edmondson, who I simply adore, her new book called Right Kind of Wrong, I think really explores this: that not all failures are created equal. There are intelligent failures. And then there are non-intelligent failures, you know, a- absent-mindedness, you know, just silly failures that really shouldn't, shouldn't have happened. And there are irresponsible, destructive failures as well. So I, I pull from the work of David Marquet, who's a retired U.S. Navy submarine captain, and he describes the difference between a bullet hole above the waterline and a bullet hole below the waterline. If you punch a bullet hole above the, the, the waterline of a submarine or a ship, that's called a lesson. You patch it up. You live to see another day, but if you rupture a, a, a hole below the waterline, that's an issue because the ship can can actually sink. So you know, sure, yeah, I, I'm I'm even pushing back. I think it was Thomas Watson who has that 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 quote that like maybe double the failure rate, but like maybe it's not intelligent failures, uh, and we need to be making intelligent failures with appropriate risk where we learn incrementally versus failures that are either silly and could have been avoided, and are sloppy, or failures that actually cause us to to fail and cease to exist. A bullet hole abo- of, uh, above the waterline is a fail forward. It's a learning, it's an iteration, it's an innovation. You know, you want innovation, you need to have a, a culture that has a tolerance for failure. Why? Because to innovate, you must experiment. If you're truly experimenting, you're going into new territory where you don't know, and a likely result is failure. And if you don't have tolerance for that, you're not going to get innovation. If you have cultures where folks are so fearful of failing for the, for the, for the repercussions, you're not going to innovate. So it needs to be appropriate failure because not all failures are created equal. And again, check out Amy Edmondson's book, Right Kind of Wrong, to explore that further.
0: Um, I might have to ask you for Amy's email afterwards to invite her to talk about her book here.
1: But we'll talk about it off fair. No, you, you, you're
0: right, because I like this concept and I've been playing around with it for, for quite a few years. It's what I call the easy to like behaviours. Like we support we support people to fail, we encourage people to fail, we encourage people to make mistakes and, and things like that. But what I often see is that lack of follow through, basically, what that, what that means. I don't want to... I always find it difficult to find the word for this, but the word that kind of comes to mind is consequences, but not in the traditional sense of punishment. Mm-hmm. But obviously, there will be repercussions of the ripple effect of what you do. That's normal. That's that's life. And I think we need to think in these categories as well, uh, which we which we often don't. And I'll, I'm always at odds where that's come from. Who who says that? Whether whether it's kind of just HR human speak, which is really nice, but sometimes a bit too soft, or is it kind of a more CEO board level that oriented again around revenues profit money and multiple other things they are far more to the point and they want kind of results uh, and the debates obviously what what comes first money or money or people what's your guided line that's that, that that's a debate that rages on continuously
1: yeah yeah i mean of which i have things to say i mean it's it's a poor business one that only concerns itself with revenue and profit i mean it's very easy to become a, a machine and for the people within it to feel as though they, they are cogs so it's pretty simple what human beings want. They want to be treated with respect and as human beings. They want to be compensated fairly and they want to be given a degree of autonomy. And we want to feel a part of something more important than simply contributing to somebody else's profit. And and for any organization who says, you know, our mission or vision is to be the best or to be number one or to be the most, blah, blah, blah. It's like no one wakes up in the morning inspired to contribute toward that. We wake up inspired to contribute to something That pushes humanity forward in a way that, that, that inspires us of which profit and, and, and money is a result and is proof that things are, things are, are working. Yeah. Profit is a, is a secondary benefit that ought to be reinvested to advance the purpose, ought to be reinvested to protect the people, whether it's folks who work with you, folks who buy from you or the communities within which you operate.
0: I, I often try to kind of play devil's advocate and and take a contrarian a point of view when when guests come on. Yeah, you're making it bloody difficult uh. um, <laughs> I, to do that because I do I, I do I do agree with that. And I've I've been looking at it for different lenses. You know the the, the kind of the, the the revenue, the profit, and and, and the people. Because on one hand, it's it's comparing apples to oranges. It doesn't make sense. One is connected to the other. So the one I've been playing around with most of all now recently is actually treating them as as a polarity. Where if you if you pose a uh, a problem as a polarity, it doesn't have and one answer. Mm. It's not either or. It's
1: um, uh, it's a, it's a spectrum.
0: And. It's a yes, yeah, yes, yeah. You need to think about the money.
1: Yeah, yeah. The e- e- exactly, I, uh, a friend of mine says no, no mission, no margin, no margin, no no mission. Of they, are inextricably linked and should feed one another. The the other thing, just to complete on the conversation on on failure. So. I have a small and mighty team. I have someone on my team right now who's pinch hitting and doing things that are outside of their strength set. Like they shouldn't be doing it. And to their credit, when we brought them onto the team, they said fully like, I'll do these things and I'll do my best, but these are kind of my Achilles heel. And eventually I will let you down here, but I understand it's what the team needs and I'm willing to do it kudos to them. You know, they weren't hired on false pretenses. They were completely open and honest. And sure enough, some three, four, and they've been on the team now for gosh, about 18 months. Sure enough, those things, they're not going well. It's little details. It's all these things, but they came clean. They're like, this isn't my strength. So does it frustrate me when mistakes are made? Absolutely. However, we've had the good conversation to be like, this is the 20% of my work, which takes 80% of my energy. It's like, of course, when someone's a strategic thinker and they're in an execution role, it's not going to go well and they will underperform. But it, it it isn't work on your weaknesses. It's let's make sure that the vast majority of your role is aligned with your strengths. So we're finally to a point where we're going to hire for someone who's really good at the things that they're not good at. So we can actually team as opposed to set this person up for, for failure. So it's like it's continuing to make the same mistake over and over, not an intelligent failure. And then for us to, to realize you're failing here because this isn't your lane to swim in. Let's get you in your lane and let's get someone else or a vendor or something to who's that's their lane and let people thrive so to make sure that I got this right so you've you've hired this person
0: to, yeah. to do a job uh, but part of that job uh, not the majority of but, but a, a big part of that job is something that they said from the start this is listen this is not my foresight yeah okay f- fair enough how do you deal with that as a leader what what do you do? How 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 much time do you give? Do you coach? Do you train? Because I said everybody will get angry. So and from anger, it's very easy to kind of go, oh, this person, you know, they're not performing. Let's change it completely and get rid of this person and get somebody else in. Yeah, how do you but handle that?
1: It would be completely foolish to get rid of the person because eighty percent of what they do is fantastic. It's the twenty percent that isn't their strength where they're falling behind, and they've been transparent with it. So like, who is to blame? this guy, right? You know, it'd be another thing if he wasn't transparent. It'd be another thing if he's like, no, 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 like this is in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I'll get better. Like, no, no, this is really hard for me. I'll do it. But really the long-term strategy is let's get somebody else in. Now, this is also the fun conversation because the business has to be able with its funds to support hiring another resource or raise capital or whatever it might be to make it to make it happen. So there's a responsible business choice of the reason we haven't had anyone else in is because we're a small growing organization, but we've gotten to the point where we look at the numbers and it's like, yep, you got to spend some money to make some more money and and grow in our operations, our revenue and our impact, what we're able to do. So, yeah, I mean it was it was this experience where I started my own company. I I thought I needed an EA. This person I connected with, his name is Alejandro. We met on, on on LinkedIn. We started chatting and he's like, you know what? You don't need an EA, you need a COO. And I'm like, ooh, that's fun. As it turns out, I need both a COO and an EA. <laughs> and so, I have a COO and now we also need an EA. And it's, it's you know, has it been hard? Has it been frustrating? Of course, but like we knew we would get here. And we've, we've arrived here. And so now it's time to solve for it. And it's a wonderful problem to solve for in the interest of each person on this team. And ergo, the organization itself thriving. I've, I've very briefly, very briefly interacted with uh, Alejandro
0: when we were trying to, to set our meeting up only by email. And it's been great. Genuinely, it's been great. Easy, simple prompt on on time from him and from my side so definitely
1: definitely and, uh, and that's the piece that he even struggles with so the fact that he's uh, he's he's doing really? it well yeah it's those little or, or organizational detail little things it takes him a lot of energy he he's good at it but it takes him energy what he's really good at is the is the figuring out a big hard problem and we want to do an online course he's like i got it you know that that's where where he thrives and the more creative strategic operational as opposed to the minute details but it's 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 good to hear you you've had a great experience because that's that's what we want
0: i did i did indeed as i said it was, it was seamless it was seamless I don't think you know. There's a lot. There's a lot of people who don't like doing organisational stuff and emails and stuff like that, and uh, responding to messages. Which is obviously, I, I much prefer to have a conversation with you like we're having now, than, than bouncing emails for, yeah. uh, for for days on end, or even the LinkedIn messages, which is which is great. Or do our taxes. <laughs> off <laughs> i've got somebody for that which are Definitely required got- yeah
1: but his alejandra's genius as well as building in systems so as opposed to doing it all manual he's let's build a, a scheduling system let's he's already created a training manual so that the when next person steps in it's like here you go it's all here for you so that's where he thrives Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, well done,
0: uh, Alejandro, uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, and I'm sure I'll be, I'm going to be interacting with him uh, again uh, after, uh, after we're done here. I'll switch us over to a question that's actually been bugging me a little bit. Well, not bugging, but I'm, I'm conflicted about. And I recently posted something on, on uh, LinkedIn uh, about the concept of anonymous feedback in an organization, where employees can submit feedback of any sort of some insights they want to share that they otherwise might not do. And an interesting discussion from a, from a good colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, came up who started questioning it, uh, that you know this is not the way to do it. And you know what? When I was creating that, I was of a similar mind. I, I think if you need to re- go down the route of an anonymous feedback, there are bigger problems that you need to solve. But my argument is that before you solve them, you might as well use some sort of like anonymous feedback to get you going before you sort out your culture
1: in the long run. Yeah. What's your take? So my, my take is I think there's a spectrum so would I prefer no feedback or anonymous feedback? I'd prefer anonymous. Would I prefer anonymous feedback over feedback where people can put their name next to it and feel that it's safe and worth it to, to do so? Yeah, that's ideal. There are some teams that I've, that I've worked with. One I'm thinking of in the, con- in the context of military, where there was a feedback tool used that was designed to be anonymous. Everyone wrote their name on it because that's the type of culture that they have. Now, if writing your name on something changes and filters the type of feedback you will deliver, well, you've got a, you've got an issue here because you want feedback to be true. So yeah, I mean, I'd rather some feedback than none whatsoever. And then I think the value of a 360 or anonymous feedback is then to have a coach or a facilitator or someone to help you unpack that. Cause sometimes feedback. To, delivered and not processed properly with a team or with someone who, who can help you see it rather than deny it or get totally triggered by it. So yeah, I mean, I'm okay with anonymous feedback. I think it's nicer to have feedback with folks who are willing to put their name next to it or to have rituals in our culture where we consistently use feedback as a vehicle to build closer relationships, to build better teams, and to grow, to grow together. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a spectrum. So I'd rather some feedback than none whatsoever, even if anonymous. Yeah, those are my two cents on it.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for for, for, for validating my train of thought. Coming from you, it means a lot. Because as I said,
1: I'm of, of similarity.
0: Ultimately, we want to be having open conversations, but that's not always possible. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's better to have something anonymous than, than, than nothing at all and sweeping things under the carpet. Because I believe we do sweep enough stuff under the carpet anyway, and we're tripping over it all the time anyway.
1: Yeah. And there's, a, can I can I add a, a bit more here, which is, so there is, I, I, I do obviously a lot of work with leaders and, and leadership teams. So I'm thinking of one particular leadership team where there was one person giving a, a leader awful feedback, but that leader had like nine direct reports. Eight of them had great things on the whole to say. And it was one person who was really struggling, right? Now, I still think it's worthwhile to look at feedback, but take the feedback, analyze it, think about it, and then go to a few people who you really trust and say, hey, I'm working on this thing or "You know, I got this feedback. Is there anything you're willing to share more or have, have you experienced this from me? But again, make it safe and make it worth it. So I'm also thinking of a, of another story where a very senior leader got 360 feedback, something around a CEO not being very open to hearing other people's opinion and then the CEO goes to their entire leadership team and says, "Hey team, I got this feedback, but you you don't feel that way, right?" And they're like, "No, no boss, absolutely not." Great. Next thing, like that's not true validating, that's narcissistic denial. So, yeah, I think take feedback with a with a grain of salt, but if you think there's any element of truth or if it triggers you, it's probably true. And I'm using the word probably to be nice. If it triggers you, there's, there's something there and it's worth delving into if indeed you wish to grow. I, I
0: like the, that element that you said, that if, it, if it triggers you. Um, I've just realized very, very rudely that we do have a couple of questions and a few comments. Uh, so I'll bring one up, which is kind of to do with um, anonymous feedback. So does a large top-down corporate organization need an anonymous or open culture of sharing? does making it completely open scare people further down to the talent from actually giving the feedback necessary to make the organisation healthier
1: so ironically we actually have a bit more courage in a group and we have more courage i think when we can be be anonymous so i think there's a couple things so one there's overall feedback to folks experience of a department of an organisation as a whole but let's remember you know for a for a ceo or a, or a senior leader who's leading hundreds or thousands of folks there's no way that they can have a meaningful one-on-one relationship with all those people so any ceo who says i care about all 20,000 people who who work here is biologically lying you just can't do it but what you can say is i know for a fact that every single person who works here has a leader now it's my responsibility to create a high trust and high performing senior leadership team, not for free. So they pass it on to their team and that team passes it on to, to their team and so on and so forth. That's the standard here. And so if you don't feel that, that you have that, that's an opportunity where we need to lean in and figure out how you can step up or how we can find um, a team that's the right team for you and the right leader for you. Because to believe that all leaders are for all people would, is, is a silly notion. Some leaders are great for some people and some leaders aren't great for for others. So, you know, organization-wide feedback is interesting, um, but it's the great common denominator. And let's face it, it's usually the pollers who usually report on those uh, as well. I think the most meaningful thing to do is to look at, What's that day-to-day world that we interact with mostly, the, the folks that we work with more frequently, because that more so determines our experience. You know, we can work in a in a team with a great leader, even if the overall leadership is ineffective or toxic. And conversely, we can be part of an amazing organization with great leadership and have a, a leader or manager who isn't for us or is quite toxic. So, you know, but what really impacts our day-to-day and our happiness is the is the people that we deal with every single day. So I think it's most important to actually focus and feed on those relationships above above any others.
0: That is that is true. One thing that is on my mind is again kind of linking back to the start of the, the comment I made in the introduction. How do we then make sure that we feel that we don't have too much noise when we do get that feedback? Now, because you know everybody's speaking up, fantastic. We got there, but now we're kind of overcorrected. We didn't have anything. Now we've got everybody speaking up, and things are being balls are being dropped around the place as
1: a result. Yeah, and so say more about noise, or t- say more about that s- that scenario. Say say a bit more. So all, all of a sudden you have people bringing things up
0: to attention of what's not working in the organization with the products that we've got issues, safety issues, Boeing that you've uh, described. In, I don't know, in a context maybe of um, artificial intelligence, OpenAI, AI and, and organizations like that, they're building models, fantastic, they're excited about that, but they're running with it maybe potentially too far and people want to speak up. Okay, we need, to, we need to slow down a little bit yeah. around the consequences. And you know, you've got a lot of inputs coming in on all fronts and how do you dissect what's the most important one? How do you prioritize, I guess, is the question.
1: Yeah, so I think we're in an age where we can actually have technology work for us and not the other way around. So when you're in a fast pace, high-pressure, something like building an airplane, something like working on something exciting like AI that has power to transform something for the better or be destructive, what are those meaningful moments where you can pause where you can collate feedback, but you can use it in a way where you can use a technology tool where folks can double click or 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 vote up, right? So this is really interesting. What if Boeing, so Boeing who made the 737 Max, which is an aerodynamically unsound plane, it's it's not a well-built plane. And and further Boeing got rid of safety inspectors and quality inspectors. So there are stories of folks waiting for a quality inspector, a safety inspector to show up. They never did. So they just kept going. That's an issue. How interesting would it be to run an anonymous survey to all of the folks who are working on that plane to on a Likert scale of one to seven? How confident do you feel that the product we're putting out, out into the market is as safe and as high quality as you think it could be? I have a hard time believing, particularly if it was anonymous, if folks would give a seven, it probably give somewhere between a one and a three, unless they were concerned that their identity would be revealed from submitting the survey. Or if they felt that them submitting the survey would make no change, no material change whatsoever, right? Like my, my favorite survey question is a scale of one to seven, how likely do you feel any change will be made because of you taking this this survey? And if it's... If it's not seven and it's closer to three, it's like, well, I shouldn't have done that. So, but I, I I think that would be interesting. And then leadership would be like, huh, the very people working on this don't feel that they're putting in a quality product. Maybe we should examine this. Pause, you know. And in the case of, of Boeing, they were so behind and vendors were, were 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 behind. They were putting unfinished airplanes in the employee parking lot, just sitting there because it was a hot mess you know, that is not a way to build an airplane. So this is where I think we can actually use technology to help filter out noise and elevate messages. And yeah, I mean, can in developing a speak-up culture, if all of a sudden you get a lot of noise and a lot of people speaking up, for me, that's a signal as a leader that we're not doing the best job that we can do here. And it's time to actually pause, slow down, get feedback, get people's voice, um, and do it in a way that is effective and efficient. But yeah, listen to the people doing the work. I, lo- I, lo- I love the
0: idea of the upvote. It's, it's so simple, so so useful. The Boeing example that you said about doing that survey, again, makes so much sense, but that actually requires the leadership to have the, I don't want to say foresight, but the awareness, I guess. Yep. The things might be actually, you know, a little bit pear-shaped in parts of the organization, which clearly... They weren't or they didn't want. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be accusatory here. They didn't, they didn't know. They didn't want to know. Uh, they weren't aware things. Okay. Multiple things have happened, but then as you described in the book, a lot of people were trying to speak up, but that just wasn't happening. They weren't being listened to and they did speak up. It just took a a fair bit of time and unfortunately, two horrific accidents for people to take
1: notice on the leadership team. I mean, Boeing is such an interesting example. The company in and of itself drastically changed in the 1990s when Boeing purchased McDonnell Douglas, which was a failing bankrupt aerospace builder, not an airline. They were, they built airplanes. And for some reason, they took all of the executives from McDonnell Douglas and made them executives at Boeing. Just like, what? Like, you bought this failing organization, but then it was the time of popularity where greed is good, and that was the type of leaders they were, and they put them in charge. Worse, they moved their headquarters away from Seattle, which is where one of the plants is in Renton, Washington, and moved it to Chicago. And so there is actually a separation of where the product was being built and where the leaders were housed. So there is actually a physical disconnection. Now, Boeing is a publicly traded organization, highly competitive market with rival Airbus neck and neck from a market share point of view. And then American Airlines and Southwest Airlines call up their their pal Boeing and say, hey, particularly American, said we're about to buy a bunch of Airbus planes to replace our old seven thirty sevens, which have not had a meaningful rehaul since nineteen sixty seven. And Boeing had a choice. They could either do it right and take 10 years to build a real good plane, or they could just do an ugly retrofit facelift to a plane that hadn't received any meaningful updates since 1967, and they chose the latter. And what they did is they put brand new, highly efficient, larger engines, but because of the aerodynamics of of the plane, the, the 737 rides very low. So they had to raise up the wings, move the engines forward, and then worse they um, got approval from the FAA that it wasn't a brand new plane, that it was just another version. There's a 737-800. This is just a newer version of that. And it was, it was part of their strategy to provide a, a, a new plane that wouldn't require any additional pilot training other than one or two hours on an iPad. You're flying a drastically different plane which by the way had a built-in system called the MCAS, which compensated for the fact that this plane was aerodynamically not sound. And then didn't tell anyone about that MCAS system and if it failed with a single point of failure. Like it was just, what the heck are you all doing? And it was decisions made from a competitive beating Airbus point of view, from a we're a publicly traded company and we need to survive. And sure, they came up with this brand brand new plane with no pilot training, which made companies like Southwest Airlines that only fly 737s very happy. And there were record orders that came in, but there was a disconnection between decisions made at a leadership level and decisions being made at an engineering and factory level. And it was a hot mess. And I think they just got in too deep and further because Boeing is such a big part of the American economy. There were other forces at play within the NTSB and the FAA that made things go smoother, even though there were ethical alarm bells going off left, right, and center.
0: Yeah, it's scary to think of everything that's happened, but as the last bit that you said about that there are larger forces at play, and the question is, if you know it happened there, where else is it happening as a result, right? When you've got these massive corporations that are so close. They're basically their 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 revenues are akin in terms of size to to GDPs, entire GDP GDPs of certain countries in the world. You wonder who is actually in control of of, of our societies of our governments. Um, but that's a whole different uh, story and a whole different podcast. I don't want to pull up that thread yeah. unless well, there is something you want to chip
1: in. I'll, I'll just say I'm a fan of the term "nice people finish last," which to me means that there's longevity, and so. <laughs> yeah. When you take shortcuts in business, it catches up to you. If you're a food manufacturer and you're intentionally putting in sawdust into food, that'll catch up to you. And as soon as you figure it out or as soon as you know, you, know, you, you can claim ignorance, but it's under your watch. And so you know, when we put profit ahead of, ahead of ethics, that doesn't typically end well. And then, and then worse, if you find out and then try to hide it, that's the time to go. This came to our awareness, and that's not how we do business. And so we're making a change. That's a fantastic way to start wrapping up. I think because yeah. there's
0: always a risk with my guests that I enjoy talking to them so much that we might be here for you know for for, for days on end. But I I am curious, and you already alluded to that a little bit of what you've got planned for. For the future, I know, for, as you said, the, the the book about your grandfather, that's probably further down the line. But if you'd like to talk about a little bit more about that, great. But I'm curious, in the next one, the end of the year, when we're recording this end of November, the end of the year start of next year, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking of end of the year, I'm looking forward to having some time with, with family and, and slowing down a bit before we ramp back up into into 2024. The book came out, at least in North America and audiobook, ebook on October 3rd, um, and it's rolled out and and I think it's out globally now, which is which is a great treat. It's been a lot of fun, particularly when I travel for a client engagement to a certain city, see if we can tack on a launch event. So we've done events in Toronto, my hometown, Portland, Oregon, New York City, Indianapolis. And so I think we'll do do some more into next year as well in Vancouver and Chicago and Washington, D.C. and whatnot. So that'll be fun. (laughs) It sounds good. I'd love to. So yeah, I mean, continuing to to get the book out there and have great live events and and live conversations about it. We're going to more meaningfully build some more online tools, digital products, online courses so that we can have this message reach as many people as possible and scale it. And then, yeah, I'm going to start working on my next book with a working title of The Book of Ben, where I'm going to ru- narrate my grandfather's life story from my experience and 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 point of view. Uh, and he just led this. I mean, when my father gave his eulogy, both my dad and I gave eulogies. I sort of spoke on behalf of the the grandkids and our relationship with him. And my my dad gave a very sort of biographical statement of his life and my dad's wow, for me, it was the hardest speech I ever gave in my life. My dad said, this is the easiest speech I've ever given in my life, because as you can see, this material writes itself. He just lived this this amazing life that I think uh, has to be told, because it's remarkable. Wow.
0: There's a, the, I'm glad there's a book in it. I don't, I don't know. I'll put it out there. But as, as you were saying that, I wondered, is there, is
1: there a movie <laughs>
0: out of it as well, based on that book that you write?
1: i I haven't yet been a movie producer, but yeah i I'm gonna write it with uh with a vision of it becoming a screenplay as well because i I think it could be, and it'll open up in rural Poland grade five where he punched back an anti-semitic teacher finally, which was his last day of formal education and then um yeah, it's just this this amazing life surviving the Holocaust, leading a group of seven, which then became a group of five in in hiding. And then ends up coming to Canada and and has a life as a as an entrepreneur and as a butcher, a modest life, but uh, yeah, a huge impact uh, that literally, you know, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for his his uh, his finding a way to survive. Whenever the time
0: comes, you sir have got a an, an open invitation to come back and talk about that book and uh, your grandfather because it seems like a. A fascinating story. Well, I'm going to say we're going to put a comma here. We're not going to put a full stop in case I believe that there's, uh, our paths will cross again. And as I said, open invitation for any topic to, to come back. So Chad, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure. Thank you very much for, for joining me. Thank you, Lech. Uh, a treat and look forward to doing it again soon. Uh, ladies and gents, that was Stephen Shedletsky. I like this podcast. I like this podcast because I get to speak to people like like Shed, uh, find out their stories and the work that they do. And I'm a little bit lost for words for now. To be perfectly honest, maybe it's because of that bit about the grandfather, his grandfather that Shed has shared at the end, but overall as always we jumped around the topic a little bit of psychological safety and speak up culture but i highly recommend highly recommend shed's book uh, that is out now in ebook format everywhere pretty much you can get your hands on it it's it's definitely worth a read if you're fascinated by the topic uh, if you want to know about the boeing situation it's it's all there Uh, it's a fantastic starting point so thank you very much for tuning in until next time take care